Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So we are looking at the kings of ancient Israel in our current series called Dynasty as we're journeying through the year of the Bible. And I must say, I've goofed up. Two of the last three weeks when I've introduced the year of the Bible, I've said the year 2020. Thank you for not telling me. So when I, when I uh, re- go over, edit the video to put online, the, three weeks ago I heard it and I was like, wait, did I hear that right? And I rewound it. Yep, I said 2020. And then last week when I was going, I did it again. So this is the year 2022. Thank God it's not 2020, right? It's 2022. We're going through the Bible this year, and we are in the series Dynasty looking at the ancient kings of ancient Israel. Specifically, the first three kings. We might talk about a few others later on, but we'll talk about the first three the next several weeks we're looking. So two weeks ago, we looked at Saul and David. We'll look at them again this week in a different way. Uh, Last week, we looked at some of the writing of David, Psalm 27. The next couple of weeks, we'll look at the writings of King Solomon, David's son, Um, both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes next week, and then Song of Solomon the week after. Yeah, so bring your significant other. Prepare to get hot and heavy in here, Song of Solomon. If you don't know, read it. It's kind of racy stuff for the Bible. You think, whoa, is that really in there? This is X-rated. It is, and we're going to talk about it. It's going to be great. So if you're not, you need to be here in two, it's in two weeks, people. In two weeks, we're talking about that. So now that I've got you hooked, you're going to be here for sure. So we're looking at the kings of ancient Israel, the first three. And so two weeks ago, we looked at Saul and David and their relationship, and we asked this question. We asked the question, what do you do when you've been wronged? We looked at how Saul wronged David and his response to Saul and how we can glean from that. Today, we're going to ask a question on the other side of that coin. So today's question is not what do you do when you've been wronged, but what do you do when you've been wrong? That's today's question, the other side of that same coin. This is actually a bonus week. I hadn't planned to go here with that, but in preparation a couple weeks ago for that sermon, I thought, wow, there's, an, there's more to explore here on the other side of that question. And so I'm getting myself behind. I had to schedule out to get through the whole Bible in a year. I'm going to still try to make it happen, but bonus week. And so here we go. What do you do when you've been wrong? We'll look today at some key mistakes made by King Saul and how he responded to those mistakes that he made and what happened from that. Then we'll also, we'll spend most of our time on Saul, but then we'll also look at David, some key mistakes that David made and his response to those mistakes and what happened because of that. And we'll examine their approaches and I think we'll observe some takeaways for our own life to answer that question for us. What do I do when I've been wrong? How do I respond? Is that how I should respond? Is my response helpful? And I think it's helpful for everybody because we've all been wrong before, correct? I know last night Kim said, nope, that doesn't apply to me, you know. She was going to skip Spring Forward Sunday because she's never been wrong, and I can attest to that. She has never been wrong, (laughs) right? Did I get that right? Nailed it, right? Yeah. 
Are you okay? Oh, I see what you did there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Diana has also never been wrong. It's hereditary. I guess that's where Kim got it from. Yeah. Oh, okay. You agree with me. Okay. So Diana has been wrong, just to clear the record. <laughs> A credible source just confirmed. No. So what do we do when we've been wrong? So, so we're going to look at Saul here, again, for most of our time together today. Saul's the first king of Israel. It's hard to be the first of something, isn't it? You're the older sibling, you look at your, and I'm the younger, I'm the younger of two, so <laughs> take that, Heather. Uh, but it's hard to be the first. You're the guinea pig. You're the lab rat. And it's not even siblings, it's anything. If you try to start a business, you don't have anybody else above you to really blame for anything that goes wrong. You don't necessarily have the experience of someone else to build off of. You're first. You're it. You're numero uno. It starts with you, and it kind of stops with you as well. You kind of feel like you're flying blind if you're the first to do something sometimes, uh, that sort of thing. So Saul's job wasn't easy, but he made it much more difficult on his own, by himself, from his own faults and imperfections, as we'll see here. So as, as Saul becomes king, Israel's starting to grow, they're starting to expand, and to the other nations around them, they're starting to become a, a threat to them. So the different countries and people groups around them start to sort of uh, declare war on Israel to try to, you know, take, take care of this small, growing people group in the Middle East. So at the time, uh, really, as we've already talked about with David as a young boy, in the time of Saul, the Philistines were the main opposition to Israel at this time, the Philistine people. And so at this time in Saul's life, as a young king, the army is fighting on two separate fronts. So Saul has about two-thirds of the army with him, and then his son Jonathan has taken the other third of the army to fight a smaller little battle there. So what happens is Jonathan and his troops, they win a small battle. And Saul sees the Philistines starting to make a move, and he's like, okay, we need to get these guys back to have the full army together for a huge epic battle we're about to have. So he sends word to the generals to bring, or to Jonathan rather, to, to bring the troops back to gather them together. Well, either a message is intercepted or the Philistines are watching and seeing what's happening, so they make some strategic moves on their own. And what happens is the smaller army, as they see the Philistines moving and see what's going on, they feel trapped. They feel threatened. And so the men, they just desert. They don't have desert. They desert. They flee the army. They say, I'm out of here. I don't care if I get killed for it. I'm running. I'm hiding. So they, they'll run. They'll hide. They'll try to go to other little towns and cities because they're not going to get captured or killed by the Philistine army. So also at this same time, while Saul is waiting for the troops to come to make this army complete, he's also waiting on Samuel, who is the national prophet of Israel, to come. And before this battle, he's going to provide a sacrifice. Now, this would be normal for basically any ancient people group. They're going to sacrifice before battle to their god or their gods in order to try to gain favor and have success in the battle. So Saul's waiting for the guys to come, and they're not coming. And he's heard maybe reports, yeah, they, they're not coming at all. They've deserted. You're on your own. And he's also waiting for Samuel. Come on, come on, come on. He's like, come on, they're, they're, they're going to fire the first shot at any time. He needs to get here, get the sacrifice done so that we can battle. We can get, do this thing. But that hasn't happened yet, and Saul gets really antsy. And so he makes his first major mistake. This is 1 Samuel 13, starting at the middle part of verse 7. Here's what happens. Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal, and his men were trembling with fear. Saul waited there seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier, but Samuel still didn't come. Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away. 
So he demanded, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. And wouldn't you know it, just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, just as he was finishing, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to meet and welcomed him and, said, and Samuel said, what is this that you have done? Saul replied, I saw my men were scattering from me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would, and the Philistines are at Michmash ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal, and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. How foolish, Samuel exclaimed. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So Saul messed up in a major way here and he had to face consequences. The kingdom now ends with him. Jonathan, who's out nobly fighting, he's one of the only ones that's going to come back from the thousand or so men that are going to desert. He should be the next king. He's fighting to preserve and expand what's going to be his one day, but because of Saul's disobedience, it's cut off. He's going to choose someone else, and that happens to be, as we know, David. You would think that Saul would have learned an important lesson here. So when a similar situation comes up in the near future, he might think differently or think twice or change his mind or do the right thing. But maybe you've maybe told God before, I'll never do that again, God. Or maybe you say, okay, God, if you get me out of this jam this one time, I promise I will be a good boy or a good girl from now on, right? You've probably been where Saul's been. And that's just not realistic to say that because sometimes we do repeat the same mistakes, Sometimes we have this thing we can't get over. We have this issue we can't conquer. We have this pet sin or this thing that we just keep falling into. It's a cycle of destruction in our lives. So we are sometimes like Saul, and that's what Saul does. He repeats the same mistake again, and it costs him even more the second time. So what happens is sometime later, now that they've, now the Philistines are out of the way, another nation is coming against them. They're called the Amalekites. So they're getting ready to go to war against them, and God promises them victory. He's already told them, you're going to win. This is going to be great, awesome victory for Israel. This is going to be amazing. But then he also gives them a command. He says, when you win the battle, after you win the battle, just don't take anything. No spoils of war, no prisoners of war, no slaves, no women, no nothing. Just leave it all, burn it all. It's just not yours. Just leave it alone. That's the only instruction they had. God says, I'm going to give you this victory. All I need you to do is just leave everything alone. So, they have this victory. The problem is Saul decides to keep a few things. He keeps the king alive, probably as a trophy, right? When God says, no, no, kill everyone, don't keep anything, they keep the king alive. They keep some of the best animals alive and a few other things. So not a lot, right? Not a lot, just a few things. Just, you know, I know God said everything, but just a few things. He won't mind, right? And so guess who shows up once again right after Saul makes this terrible decision? Samuel shows up again right on time, and here's what happens. This is 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting at verse 12. Early the next morning, Samuel went down to find Saul. Someone told him Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. Then he went on to Gilgal. When Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you, he said. I have carried out the Lord's command. 
And here's what Samuel says. Then what is all this bleeding of sheep and goats and the lowing of cattle I hear? Samuel demanded. It's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle, Saul admitted, but they're going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We've destroyed everything else. Let's get down to verse number 19, 1 Samuel 15, verse 19. Samuel asked Saul this, Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everything else. Then my troops brought in the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. But Samuel replied, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as the sin is as sinful as witchcraft, and stubbornness is as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So we see here from Saul a repeated pattern of behavior and a repeated negative pattern of responses to that behavior. So what we're going to look at for a little bit here is how did Saul get into this mess? What did he do to get him to, first time, God says, I'm rejecting your line as king, okay? Second time, he says, God's rejecting you as king. So it's the blessings off of you now. God's favor is off of you now. His anointing is off of you now. It was just, he's going to still be all that to you until you die. But now, nope, not anymore. It's gone. It's over. Everything's changed. How did Saul get into trouble So as we'll see here for Saul, when he was wrong, he operated out of rejection. That was his main mistake. And he got to where he ended up because he rejected so many things so many times that it ended in his own rejection. So I want to look at four things through these two stories that Saul rejected and how we can hopefully learn from his mistakes and not fall into the same trap. So when we've been wrong, we don't want to operate out of rejection, although sometimes we do. So I want to see why that's bad and what we can do about it. So the first thing that Saul rejected here when he, to get to where he was is he rejected help. Saul acted in isolation in both of these circumstances. With the sacrifice the first time, he was supposed to wait for Samuel to come and do it. But he didn't. He did it on his own in isolation. After the battle that they had, he just decided on his own just to keep a few things. He didn't ask anyone He didn't run it by anybody. He certainly didn't pray about it. Okay, God, are you sure we can't keep something? Are you sure that's what you said? He just decided on his own in isolation without any other source of help or insight to just do what he felt like he wanted to do or felt like he needed to do. He rejected help and acted in isolation. And decisions made in isolation are are tricky. They are. Because sometimes they might be the correct decision, But if you make it on your own, you don't really know from any outside source or anyone to help you if it is the right decision. You're kind of just going off your gut, which may not always lead you to the right place. You're kind of going off of what you think and that may not, or what you want, and that may not always be the right thing to do. So they're they're tricky. You You could get lucky. You could make a decision on your own in isolation and you could get so lucky that you do the right thing that one time. But more often than not, The decisions that we make in isolation are awful, and we have no one there to stop us from making that mistake. We have no one to protect us from ourselves. 
No one to talk reason into us. No one to say, no, 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 this is what we should do, you shouldn't do. No, there's strength in numbers. There's wisdom in numbers. And even if you're at the top in your situation, like you own the business, or you're the boss, or you're the parent, right? It's like, even if you're at the top of the food chain, you still need people around you to help you make the best decision. Still got to have those people. So that's what, at, at the church, I have to rely upon on people in the church to, to kind of have an ear to the ground of what's going on, what we're thinking, where we're at, to know, okay, should we do this thing? Now, here's the deal. Even if you're at the top, the, the buck does stop with you, yes. The decision is ultimately yours, possibly like with Saul. He's the king, so he, he can do whatever he wants to do. He's in charge, but he took that, and then plus isolation caused his downfall. He didn't have any wise counselors around him to help him uh, with instruction or insight, so it cost him. Wise counsel is wise, so that's, that's a good thing to consider. Um, and here's, here's a key to that. Sometimes we're afraid of asking for help with decisions because we're afraid that they'll talk us out of what we want to do. Or, I mean, if I give them a little bit of input, if I give them an inch, they're going to take a mile. If I ask this person who works under me, they're going to try to come for my job now. They're going to try to take credit that it should be mine, you know, or, or whatever. But no, here's the thing. Collaboration doesn't take power away from us. What it does is it takes the pressure off of us doesn't take power away it takes the pressure off it helps us to make the best decision possible and this is something that i'm i'm learning and i I hope that we're all learning we need to accept help when it comes to life decisions now i'm not even talking about like sinful decisions now that's true people around us will help us to say don't do that that is wrong that is not right but even just in everyday life if we want to try to keep making the best possible decision and then the next one and the next one we have to have help we have to have those people around us to maybe keep us from making a mistake or if we have the right people around us after we've made a mistake they can maybe help us get out of it a little bit easier we can lift that thing together and work through that and get past it so we have to have help don't reject help the second thing that saul rejected to get to where he was was reason saul rejected reason he acted impulsively he he would not wait he could not wait that's that's where saul found himself Offering the sacrifice, the first, the first mistake he made, that wasn't his job. He's the king. He's not the priest. Okay? Those are two different things. Those are separate. The only time those come together is through Jesus. Prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is all of those things. Other than that, those are three separate things for three separate people. So Saul was, was going over the line and doing what he thought was right when it really wasn't. So he acted impulsively. He got in a hurry. So let me encourage us here today, don't allow a timeline or a deadline to force you into a bad decision. Don't allow a ticking clock to make you panic and make a mistake. Let me give you two two reasons how we can do that, or two encouragements about this. The first thing I would say is if we find ourselves consistently at the last second making a knee-jerk decision because I'm in a hurry now, here's what I would encourage you to do. Plan better the next time. Don't procrastinate. Some decisions do have a time clock that ticks down, but those don't just spring up out of nowhere. You knew at the beginning when this decision process started, there's a deadline. So if we wait and wait and wait and put it off and put it off and, you know, I can do it later. And then all of a sudden it's like, it's got to happen right now. And what do I do? And I'm freaked out and I'm going to make a mistake and I'm going to do something wrong and I'm going to forget something. Well, if we had maybe thought at the beginning to plan ahead, not procrastinate, we may not have gotten into this spot. 
So it's March Madness, right, coming up. The tournaments are right now, and the big tournament's next week. And so there's this thing in basketball called a shot clock violation. Are you familiar with that? So in basketball, every, there's, there's a, it's called a shot clock. So in college, for instance, there's 30 seconds. When you get the ball and put it in bounds, you have 30 seconds to get a shot up for it to hit the rim, or else you turn the ball over to the other team. So this is not something that just in the middle of the game, they decided, let's do a shot clock. And then the team, why did, we weren't prepared for this. No, that's not how it works. They know this is one of the rules. I got 30 seconds to get the shot off to hit the rim, or we turn the ball over. But there's a couple of reasons why a team might commit a shot clock violation. Uh, the first one, sometimes that you'll see this, is they take way too long to set the play up. They're just dribbling, dribbling, dribbling around half court, dribbling, dribbling, dribbling. And then it gets down to five seconds. They're like, whoa, now we've got to run our play in five seconds or we're not going to turn the ball over. And so then they pass the ball or they, or they you know, throw it out of bounds or they get a steal or they get a shot clock violation. They didn't get the shot off in time. And then that's the other team's ball. Another reason is a team may not have practiced for the right defense that they're facing. So this team is going to press really hard, but we didn't practice that in practice. So when they press really hard, we don't know what to do, and I can't get the ball to my teammate, and we turn the ball over because of a shot clock violation. Again, this is in the rule book. You know before the game starts, you've got to get the ball off in 30 seconds or less, or you're going to turn the ball over. It's the same thing with life and our decisions. There are certain things that we do that we know there's a deadline. We know there's a date. We know that this has got to be done by this time. And so if we wait too long or we don't prepare, there's a violation. We're going to mess things up. We're going to find ourselves in a hole, in a deficit, in a problem, in a corner, in a quandary, in a mess. I don't know how many ways I can say that. Uh, and it's just not good. So we don't want to do that. So if, if, we, if you're making a goal, kind of know what that process looks like. Know what the deadline is, what the date is, so you don't have that sort of violation. And again, I'm not even talking about sin necessarily. I'm talking about just life in general. Um, maybe you're trying to break a habit. You kind of need to know those key times you're going to be tempted to go back into that habit. You're going to have to have that thing set up so you're prepared. Don't procrastinate. Well, now I really, really, really want that piece of chocolate cake. And it's right there in front of me. And I'm, stand, I'm staring at it. It's like, no, pre prepare for that. Like, push that away. Throw it away if you have to. Feed it to the, not to the dog, obviously, if it's chocolate cake. Uh, whatever, garbage disposal, your child, whoever, right, whatever it is, we want to prepare and not be caught off guard. Here's the second thing about a timeline or a deadline. Don't let someone else's um, arbitrary deadline throw you off. So for instance, let's say you're going to go buy a car. That salesman's going to say, you got to sign right now. you gotta sign the, you got to sign because this deal only lasts like today. If you, if you go home and sleep on it, you're not going to get this deal. You're just not. It's going to be way more. It's going to cost you more in the long run. you got to sign it. Sign it. Sign the paper. Sign it. It's like, I'm not signing that paper because guess what? If I come back tomorrow, I'll probably get the same deal. I mean, just, just seriously, do you want to sell the car or do you not want to sell the car? Because I will buy it, but I'm going to sleep on it first. And so it's like, what, what if, and it, there's no real deadline to, to these types of decisions sometimes that we make, but other people put the arbitrary timeline in there. Make, I need a decision now. Or what? Like, seriously, if there's, no, if there's no answer to that, then there's no deadline to have to freak out about and make a decision that you haven't thought through and used reason for. So don't be held hostage by others, by some, someone's else artificial or arbitrary timeline. Because if you miss out on opportunity, you know, maybe you missed out. But I would rather miss out on an opportunity that I thought through rather than force myself into making a mistake that I have to deal with, I have to live with now. Like, I, I made this commitment. I don't have time for it, but I said I would do it. So, yikes, I got to figure it out. 
Like we don't want to be there. I, I, made, I gave my word that I would follow through here, and I don't know how I can do that now. But I felt pressured by this person. Let's not get caught in that trap that Saul got caught into by rejecting reason. We have to think things through. Use reason, logic, planning, foresight to hopefully avoid errors and mistakes and even sin. And then also, if we get caught in that web, use that reason to figure out how to work through that. So here's the third thing that Saul rejected in both of these instances, and this is a big one here that cost him. He rejected obedience. What Saul did here is he acted partially. Again, he waited for Samuel probably for like 6.999 days when Saul said, wait for seven days. He's like, well, it's going to be seven days in like five minutes. He's not going to get here in five minutes. I'm going to go ahead and do the sacrifice. I can't wait five more minutes. That's probably what happened because right as they're done, Samuel's walking up. So he's not that far away. He's, gonna, he's on his way. He's going to show up. But Saul rejected complete obedience. The second time is even more obvious. God said, after you get this victory, after I give you this, the Amalekites into your hands, he says, destroy everything. Nothing remains, nothing alive, nothing survived. It's all gone. But Saul just kept a few things, right? Just a few, just like one guy out of maybe thousands of people he kept alive. Like just a few of the best animals, a few of the best things that they could find, they kept. Not, not a lot, right? But it was partial obedience. And partial obedience is disobedience. So we have this thing in our, and it's not super new, but it's this idea in our culture called moral relativism. It's this idea that these, this set of rules may work for you, but this other set of rules is what works for me. Truth is relative. We hear this, you know, phrase, I'm going to speak my truth. Well, that's code for your opinion, right? My truth is code for my opinion. Truth has a definition. There is one thing that is true, which means if that is true, everything else about that thing must be false by definition. There can't be two truths about one thing ever about anything. So when someone says, I'm going to speak my truth, I'm just like, buckle up. I'm ready for this ride of opinion, right? I just stand. <laughs> if I ever hear that, it's just like, oh my goodness, what are they going to say? It's probably not true, usually, you know, I'm speak my truth, okay? But that's, that's everywhere in our culture. It's everywhere. But God works in absolutes. So there's moral relativism that our culture is now ingrained in, but God works in absolutes. I will say, though, this is not always obvious, because even though God may have said something, life is lived in shades of gray. I don't know if it's 50 of them, but there are, life is lived in shades of gray, okay? And we might, I kind of feel like I know this is the right thing to do, but I really don't want to do it. And I really have thought about it, and it is pretty clear this is the best course of action, but man, I really don't want to do that. And I know that I should not respond to this person in this way, but everything within me really just wants to vomit this all over them. Maybe not literally. Maybe. I don't know. If you've got that, you're like a Marvel superhero. <laughs> vomit man. I don't know, right? But we, sometimes we know the right thing to do, whether it's, again, sinful or not, or just a mistake that's going to put you back in a different part of your life. We might know the right, but it's not always easy to do. It's not always super obvious, black and white. There's, there, are, there are shades of gray in life, so we have to know that going into it. But that's where the Bible is so important. 
That's why us, I think going through Scripture, seeing larger themes of Scripture, seeing what God says, that, oh man, he's, he said that way over here. He also said that way back here. There are themes throughout the whole Bible. It's helpful for us to see that because the Bible is our roadmap for life. It really is. Psalm 119 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It lets us know maybe not 10 steps ahead, but the next one, it will. It will give us guidance and wisdom for maybe not the next three months of your life. It may be like the next three minutes of your life, which is maybe all you need right now. The Bible is that roadmap. But it does offer specific directions to achieve specific results. It is not arbitrary. It is not relative. It is absolute. It is true. And let me say it this way. The Bible is a feast, but it is not a buffet. I went to a buffet last night, so I know what I'm talking about, people, all right? The Bible is a feast. There is so much there, so much wisdom and insight and truth, but it is not a buffet. We do not get to choose what we want the Bible to say. You know what? I'm going to, yeah, I like that verse there, but that I'm, no, I don't like what that verse says, so I'm going to ignore that one. Or I'm going to reorient the Bible to fit my situation and cherry-pick verses and things that really affirm me or affirm what I'm thinking. But this other part that clearly says that I cannot do that, I'm just going to act like it's not even there. Or I'm going to change it or twist it into what it doesn't actually say. So, again, the Bible is a feast, but it's not a buffet. It is what it is. It says what it says, and either we have to choose. Will we abide by the Word of God or will we not? We can't reject obedience. And for Saul, God's instructions to him were so clear. Samuel had said, wait for me before the sacrifice. Wait, he didn't even say necessarily it was going to be a certain number of days, but it says seven. It was on the seventh day, I'm assuming, and Saul got antsy, and he hadn't shown up, but he didn't say, if I don't show up, go ahead without me. He didn't say that. He said, wait for me, and Saul disobeyed. When God said, don't keep anything for yourself, and he kept a few things, that's disobedience. He rejected complete obedience. And I wonder if we really, really, really get introspective for a second and really, really get personal with ourselves for a second. I wonder if there are areas of our own lives where we are rejecting complete obedience. I wonder if we really ask God to really examine me as David writes in the Psalms, search me, O God, try me, see if there be any wicked way in me. Is there a little corner or crevice that I've always kept off limits to you? Is there this secret sin that I've not told anybody about? I'm really good at hiding, and God, no one will ever find out, but God knows, right? Are, those, are there those things that we just say, okay, God, I'll let you go this far, but no farther in my heart. I'll let you handle these issues of my life, but, but not these key things that I really are too important for me to give over to you. I wonder if we might be more like Saul than we realize, and we reject complete obedience. We don't want to resist obedience. We don't want to, we don't want to reject obedience. Now, these first three rejections from Saul sort of got him to the point, really, of no return. It was his downfall to some degree. It really got him to this point. But it's this fourth one that we'll talk about here for just a minute where everything then blew up to bits. He destroyed everything. The bridge that was behind him to get back to God, boom, blown up. Because the fourth thing that Saul rejected was responsibility. Saul rejected responsibility. He acted selfishly. He shifted blame to everyone else for all of his mistakes. Don't you hate when people do that? 
Like, it's obvious that they were wrong. You know they were the one in error. They were the one that said this or did that. You maybe even have it on tape. Like, I've got the, I've got the carbon copy of this. You, this is your signature. You did this. This is on you. And yet they will just not take responsibility. So when it comes to the sacrifice, the first thing, Saul blames the soldiers for deserting. Well, they're not going to come, and so I've got to do something. Samuel's not showing up. It's his fault. I've got to take action. They, they're just doing whatever, and so I've got to do it. He blames everybody else for his own mistake. When it comes to after the battle, he blames the army again. Well, the, the, he even says the army decided to keep some stuff. It's like, you're the king. Stop them. You're in charge. Do whatever you have to do to make him not do what God said not to do. It's, it's on him. And then, I think to some degree here, for the second one, he almost tries to blame God. Because what does he say? Well, we kept these things to sacrifice them to God. We thought, well, we obviously need, we need to sacrifice, you know, and God will really be happy with that. And it's like, well, no, no, this is not God's fault. Your mistake is never God's fault. Saul tried to go there, I think, in some subtle sort of way. Even after, even after Samuel confronts him the second time, he tries to come clean, but he can't make himself do it. He still blames everyone else because he says, I just did what they wanted. Yeah, I guess I was kind of wrong, but I just did what they wanted. They wanted me to do it. They twisted my arm, even though he's the king in complete control. He can do anything he wants and make anyone do anything he wants them to do. He still blames everyone else. He refuses to take responsibility. He rejects them. And the saying is, you know, when you point a finger at someone, you have... Three, three, I don't know how you guys point, but <laughs> at least three pointed back at yourself, right? And that's, that's what Saul failed to recognize. And he, re- he rejected responsibility. Here, here's why that's bad. And then we'll get to David. And again, David won't be nearly as long as Saul, but here, let's finish up Saul real quick. He rejected responsibility. Here's why that's so dangerous for our lives, okay? Rejecting responsibility damages relationships in your life. Because the people that you blame feel used, feel abused. They feel like, wait, well, no, 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 no. This is not on me at all. I had nothing to do with that. Why am I getting the blame? I wasn't even in the room when you made that agreement. I'm not in on this. And yet, if, if we point the finger of blame at others, we fracture relationships. We damage them. When we reject responsibility, we damage our own trust and credibility with others. Because people begin to see this pattern. If things go well, they take the credit. If things go poorly, I get the blame. That ruins our trust and credibility with others. People will say, I can't trust them. I can't do business with them. I can't rely on them. I can't take them at their word. That's not the kind of people that I think we want to be. And so when it comes down to we did drop the ball, just own it. As hard as that is, as humbling as that is, as difficult as that is, in the long run, it pays huge dividends, not just for ourselves, but for those around us as well. Saul rejected responsibility, and it led ultimately to his own rejection by God. That's a sad state of affairs. Let's look here quickly then at David. What David did that was wrong seems on the surface to be much worse than what Saul ever did. So this is later on, a couple decades later. This is 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. It's a very famous story, but I'll recap it very quickly, and then we'll get into a couple key decisions that that David made. So David kind of having a midlife crisis. There's a war going on. As the king, he's also the lead general in the army, but he decides to stay back and stay away and stay at home during the battle. And so 
you know, it's like he's kind of bored and he's kind of looking around. And all of a sudden, down the street, he sees a lady bathing on her rooftop. Uh, this is not her fault. We're not going to victim blame here. That was just the way things were then. So David, though, has some googly eyes and he's like, whoa. And he talks to his servant. And he's like, you know, Aruga. he's like, who is this? <laughs> and his... And his servant says, her name is Bathsheba, she's the wife of Uriah. This is important. So in 1 Chronicles 11, Uriah is listed as one of what's called David's mighty men. David had 45 top trusted generals that would do anything for him, that would die for him. Uriah is one of these mighty men. David sees this woman bathing, he decides... I want what I want. I'm going to take what I want. As king, I can do anything I want. So he brings her in, sleeps with her, sends her home. He shames her. He takes advantage of his position. He abuses his power to this woman. So then later, he gets word. She sends back word, hey, Dave, I'm pregnant. This is a problem because Uriah is where David should be fighting this battle for his king. And so David's thinking, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And he's like, I've got it. So he calls for Uriah to come off the battlefield for kind of a little, you know, weekend getaway back at home with his wife. He brings him in, says, hey, you've been doing such a great job. I want you to go home and enjoy the weekend, enjoy your wife. Did you catch that last part? Enjoy your wife, you know, and then, and then just go back after you've been refreshed. Uriah, being a noble man, says, I cannot do that. So he sleeps out in the front courtyard with the other uh, servants of David. He says, my brothers are out fighting and battling and dying for you. I'm not going to defile their sacrifice by having a weekend off with my wife, so he won't do it. So then David decides, well, my plan B is to get the guy drunk so he'll sleep with his wife. So he brings Uriah back in. They party, they drink. He gets him drunk, and now he says, okay, now, 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 now go enjoy your wife in this weekend. And still, Uriah will not do it. He goes back. Uh, so he's going to go back to the battlefield. So now David's really panicking, isn't he? He's, okay, th- this is not going to be good. And here's the thing. This is what happens when we make mistakes and we're trying to freak, you know, figure things out in such a, a fast sort of way, is why would people just assume that Bathsheba is pregnant from David? Why would they just make that jump and that leap? And can't David, if he's the king, just deny that with no question? No one's even going to question if it's him. But still, he, his guilt got the best of him, and his mind wasn't thinking straight, and he was panicking and freaking out. So he makes this leap that no one else is going to make. So then he decides there's only one other option. So he sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a little sealed note for the general. And he, Uriah is ha- handing the general his own death warrant. The note that David writes to the general says, put Uriah in the hottest part of the battle and then have all the other men pull back. So David sets Uriah up, one of his mighty men, to die in battle. If you'll recall, a couple weeks ago, Saul tried the same thing with David, didn't he? Saul put David in impossible battle situations to have him killed so he wouldn't have to do it. David repeats the same mistake Saul made decades ago. So Uriah hands the general the note, and he follows the order of the king. They go to the hottest part of the battle. Uriah on the front line. The other, all the other men pull back, and Uriah is killed in battle. So David's like, problem solved, because here's what he does. After Bathsheba mourns her husband's death for a time, good old generous King David brings in this lowly mourning widow into his palace to become one of his wives. So when now she gives birth, months later, the math kind of checks out. Everything's fine, you know, and so there's no one to question what David has done. He's gotten away with it. 
except he hasn't. Because Nathan, who is now the new national prophet, approaches King David with an issue. He says, he says King, there's an issue in the kingdom. You've got to figure out. You've got to solve this problem. David's like, okay, what's going on? He says, well, King, there was a really rich guy with a whole flock of sheep. And then next door to him, there was a really poor guy with only one sheep. David's like, no problem so far. Continue. So Nathan says, well, here's the problem. The rich man who had all these sheep had a visitor come for dinner. And they decided they're going to have lamb chops. And so when the rich man, he's like, you know, I don't want to give up any of my sheep for dinner. So he takes the only sheep of the poor man to have for dinner with his guest. And, and David just won't have any of it. He says, whoever has done this must die. He must pay four times what he stole from this man. And the prophet Nathan says, David, you are that man. You have everything in the world. You're the king of one of the most powerful nations on earth, and yet you took the wife of one of your mighty men as your own to do with as you pleased. You disgraced him, you defiled her, and you have defiled yourself in the process. So here's the question. What did David do when he was wrong? Here's what he did. 2 Samuel chapter 12, the first half of verse 13. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So David responded when he was wrong with repentance. That's the distinction between Saul and David. Because David committed the same errors that Saul did. The first three things, David checked all those boxes. He acted in isolation by himself. His mind was wandering when he should have been at war, and he made a huge mistake. He acted impulsively. I'm married. She's married. We shouldn't do this. I want to do this. We're going to do this. It happened that quickly. He acted impulsively, and he acted in disobedience. He tried to cover it up kind of in the best way possible, and it didn't work, and so he had to kind of up his game a little bit. That didn't work. Then he actually had to have his friend killed. So he acted in isolation. He acted impulsively. He acted in disobedience, just like Saul had done, yet he did not reject responsibility. He responded with repentance. And part of David's confession is Psalm 51. If you've never read it, you should. It's like 13, 14 verses. It's beautiful. And it's, it's David's psalm of repentance for this act that we just talked about. And once exposed, David doesn't excuse himself. He doesn't try to place any blame. Here's, here's one of the verses, Psalm 51, verse 4. David says, against you and you alone have I sinned, talking to God here. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. Now, at first glance, that seems odd. David says to God, against you and you only have I sinned. Well, no, you sinned against a lot of other people here in this scenario. But David ultimately understands the depth of his sin. The true offense of his sin goes deeper than a personal level. It goes to a spiritual level. And it's true with us too. Because we are made in God's image and God's likeness, when we sin against someone else, we are sinning against God because we're all made in his image. So it's not just that I've offended them or hurt them or wronged them or cheated them. It's that in the process, I've done all those things to God as well. Here's another key difference between Saul and David. This is Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. David writes, you do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Remember, Saul tries to justify his sin by saying, well, we're going to sacrifice to God. That's what he wants. That would please him. And David says, no, that's not what God wants. That's not what he cares about. He cares about the truth. 
He cares about what is right. He cares about when we are wrong, that we admit that we are wrong. We are going to say, I'm going to turn from my sin and turn to God. What he also does, though, is he shows us another thing that repent- what repentance is and what it is not. Okay? Quickly. Repentance is not guilt. Repentance does not equal guilt. Repentance equals change. Guilt is a feeling. Repentance is a decision. Okay? Guilt is a feeling. Repentance is a decision. God, can I just tell you something you may not have ever heard before? God doesn't want you to feel guilty for your sin. God doesn't want to beat you up over your sin. God doesn't want you to beat yourself up over your sin. And even if we did that, it doesn't work anyway. We feel guilty for a while, and then we do the same thing again. I feel bad I got caught. I'm going to be sneakier next time. That's typically what the human heart tends to do, but that's not what God wants. Second uh, Corinthians 7, chapter 7, verse 10 tells us what God wants. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow is guilt. Guilt will drive you crazy. And that's literally what happens to Saul. His guilt literally drove him to insanity. He begins to go out of his mind. That's why David's brought in to play the harp for him and sing for him. He's losing his mind over his guilt. He's not really truly repented of sin. He just feels bad in some level, on some level, for what he has done. Guilt, what, what it does is it creates this cycle of despair. I make a mistake, I feel bad about it, but I don't change. So I make the mistake again, I feel worse about it, but I still don't really want to change. I make the mistake again, and then I feel bad and worse and worse, and then it leads to despair. Now guilt has led to despair. Is what it says, godly sorrow leaves no regret. So that's what we want. Repentance is this recognition that I've done wrong, but also a desire to turn and go a different direction. That's what repentance really means, to turn and go a different direction. Not just feeling bad, but saying, no, something must change here in this situation. Let me just say one more thing that repentance is not. It's not guilt. It's also not perfection. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not trying to beat us up or put us on this guilt trip here. Repentance is not perfection. Change that we're talking about is not perfection. We're not going to get everything right every time all the time. Because an expectation of perfection leads to more guilt. I really, I really know I should be perfect, and I should never mess up. I should never sin. I'm a Christian, and I give my life to Jesus, but I did mess up, and I did sin. It leads to guilt, and it gets us out of whack, and it gets us on this downward spiral to nowhere. And really, an expectation of perfection is also what it leads us to self-righteousness. If I try hard enough, I can never sin again. That doesn't work at all, ever, in any way. If I do the right things, then God will be happy with me. Or if I pray the prayer the right way, God will forgive me. No. Repentance requires grace on God's part. That's what it is. As I said earlier, God has no requirement to forgive any of us for any of our sins. His justice would punish us for our sins. But through His grace, He sent His Son to punish Him for us. That's grace. We don't deserve that. We can't earn that. We can't work for that. But God gives it to us by his grace. One more scripture as we close, and that's 1 John 1, 9. Here's the key part. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's the key, the confession, the repentance. 
I'm going to turn from sin and turn to God by faith. Not just try to be better, not just try to act better, not try through willpower to stop this, but no, God, I need your grace. I need your grace to help me to try to resist a little stronger next time. And when I resist all I can and I still break, your grace will then pick me up, brush me off, and let's have a go again. Let's do it again. That's what that is. When we admit our way is wrong and God's way is right, when we admit that uh, our decisions to pursue God's way is better, even imperfectly, that's what a life of repentance is. And that's what God's looking for. That's what he accepts. So when you're wrong, will you live a life of rejection that drives you crazy and destroys everything around you? Or will you live a life of repentance that leads you to God? 